We'll turn our gaze to God's word to become more eager and more confident to share the gospel. Moving from the principles that underlie our evangelism to the practical outworking of it. And this morning, we're going to get to the principle of principles when it comes to sharing the gospel. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning in verse 15. Together, we'll read Romans 1, 15 through 17 today. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Romanos capítulo 1, versículo 15 a 17. Una definición del Evangelio. Why should we be eager to share the gospel? Let's find out. The Apostle Paul writes beginning in verse 15. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These are God's words. We need God's help. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you eager to further celebrate the gospel of your son. To see what you have done to save sinners like us so that we would be compelled and energized and inspired to go and tell other sinners how they might be saved. Lord, this morning we pray that you would take what is familiar in the gospel, in this passage before us, what we know to be true and that you would impress it upon our hearts in a way that changes us today. Oh Lord, we pray that in the power of your spirit, your gospel would go forth, and that in the power of your spirit, we would hear it, we would receive it, and we would believe it. For the glory of your name, and for the good of our souls, and the good of our neighbors. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why should we share the gospel? We just read it. Why should we share the gospel? Because the gospel and the gospel alone is God's power to save. We've all just read this together. That's the whole thing, church. That's the whole thing this morning. <laughs> Foundation has been laid. Paul is ready, he's willing, and with every fiber of his being, he is eager to preach the gospel to those also who are in Rome because nothing else has the power to save sinners from the power and the penalty of sin. Nothing else has that power. So then, why aren't we more eager to share the gospel with those who are also in Santa Ana? Why aren't we more eager to share this message with our friends, with our neighbors, with our fellow church members, even at Cross of Grace, other believers? Why aren't we just as eager as Paul? Why don't we share the gospel more? Ask yourself this morning, right now, 
why don't you share the gospel more? Why don't you share the gospel at all? Why don't you share the gospel as much as you believe you ought to? And I know I've just made an assumption here, right? If you're overflowing right now with eagerness to evangelize, then I apologize to you. (laughs) But I acknowledge that most of us, being honest about our, our hearts, are not overflowing with this eagerness. Or at least not as much as we want to be. So the question is, why aren't we? And there are many reasons why, many genuine obstacles that could come into our minds as we answer this question. Fear, right? We could have a fear of failure, of rejection, of ridicule, of embarrassment, or something worse. Fear could hinder us from sharing the gospel with our neighbors. We could refrain because we don't want to offend someone by telling them the truth and thereby implying that they trust in something false if they trust in something that's not Jesus Christ and his gospel. We could have feelings of ineptitude or incompetence. We could think to ourselves, I don't know what to say or how to answer every question. Therefore, I'll just keep this to myself. We could have feelings and nagging accusations of disqualification in evangelism because of remaining sin in our lives. We could feel disqualified. Someone like me can't go share this news with someone else. Evangelism could come across to us as more of a duty, right, than a delight. And as such, our desire for it begins to run low because we only relate to it, we only see it as some kind of duty laid upon us. Maybe we just don't really stop to consider this, but we don't appreciate the gravity of the situation that non-Christians, that lost people, are in. We don't stop to consider what they still have yet to be delivered from. Maybe you've been a Christian for so long that you don't have very many non-Christian friends. And so you look around for someone to share the gospel with and you go, I gotta make new friends. What am I gonna do? I have to branch out and that's hard. And now listen, all of these reasons, they're valid to an extent. But hear this, none of these reasons really strikes at the heart of our reluctance to evangelize. This morning, I'd submit that often we don't share the gospel because we don't see the God of the gospel as we should. And so before passing go, as it were, to go on to practical strategies for evangelism, we need first and foremost to examine our personal communion with God. Author Michael Reeves, he suggests just this in our uh, April book of the month that we'll announce on the blog this week, but it's on the back table today. What fuels the mission of the church? Writing, but here is the great admission that many of us need to make. When it comes to the great commission, our hearts aren't really in it. Something far deeper than practical or operational limitations is causing our mission fatigue. What ails us, he says, goes right to the core of our relationship with God. The main idea that Reeves develops in his book is that sharing the gospel It flows downstream from our sharing in the goodness and the glory and the grace of the God 
of the gospel. The extent to which we drink deeply of him is the extent to which we'll be eager to tell others about him. That's the whole thing. Reeves continues explaining. He says, unless we honestly find God to be beautiful and enjoyable. This morning, do you honestly find God to be beautiful and enjoyable? Ask yourself. Unless we honestly find God to be beautiful and enjoyable, we'll have nothing worth saying to the people around us. Until we see him aright, we'll have no genuine desire to fill the world with the knowledge of our God. The knowledge of the God that the quote concludes, who is so full of life and goodness that he, our God, loves to be known. Not as a campaign to impose himself on us or on the world, but to give himself and to share his own life with the world. Church, this morning, we take our stand on the firm foundation that the gospel and the gospel alone is God's power to save. We do. But we must acknowledge that if we're not full of the God of the gospel, then the gospel won't be overflowing from us. If we're not full of the, gospel, the God of the gospel, then the gospel won't overflow from us. Simple as that. If we're not seeing God aright, as the one so full of life and goodness that he loves to be known and to give himself and to share his own life with the world, our fuel tanks of evangelistic energy will always be running on low, always be running on empty. And so this is why we begin our series with Romans 1, 15 through 17. Because God's giving of himself and sharing of his life is precisely what we see in these verses. It's like us uh, shoveling coal into the furnaces of our, of our hearts as we go into Romans 1, 16 through 17 and see the God of the gospel, see what he's done to save. We're fueling the fire by starting here today that will drive our mission as a church. In the moments that follow, as we look at these verses, we'll turn our attention to them in order to see the God who is at the center of the gospel. We'll take our time as we do that to delight in his saving work, to look on him and dwell upon just how he's saved us so that our hearts would be freshly filled with his, and hear these words, generous, life-giving grace. The kind of grace so good and so free that it overflows from all who receive it just as it overflowed from the one who gave it. And as we do so, Two points will guide our progress through what is Paul's thesis statement of his magnum opus of gospel exposition, explanation, and celebration that is the letter to the Romans. And they're quite simple points this morning for us. Point number one, God saves by giving. God saves by giving, and we could add a little parenthesis there, not by demanding. Number two, we're saved by receiving. And again, parentheses there, not by doing. God saves by giving. We're saved by receiving. This is the gospel of the grace of God. And so let's jump into the text. Beginning with point number one, God saves by giving. Let's look again at verse 16. 
Here Paul is explaining why he's so eager to share the gospel. You see from verses uh, uh, 16 through 17, there's a series of, of four. For this, for that, for that, which we could really read as because. Paul is eager to share the gospel because, beginning in verse 16, he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel for, next clause, or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is eager to share the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. This is the argument he's laying out. And we stop immediately (laughs) because we note that as he mentions here that he's not ashamed, Paul actually takes it for granted. He assumes that we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Otherwise, he wouldn't include that there. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But the temptation to be ashamed is present for all of us. Because of the kind of message that the gospel is, in the kind of world in which we live, to the kind of people to whom the gospel goes. Here, Paul asserts that even though his message of the cross, which he talks about in other places in his writings, is foolishness, right, to the world, doesn't make any sense. How could you live by Jesus dying? How, how could God conquer through death? It doesn't make any sense. That sounds moronic. That sounds foolish. That sounds like a bunch of wishful thinking to many in the world. Paul says that even though this message is foolishness to the world, even though his gospel of God's salvation is actually revolting, right, to the natural person who, and we can all probably see ourselves in these couple of statements here, the natural person who doesn't want to think they need to be saved, right, from anything, who believes that they might be good, right, in and of themselves, deep down, who desires to earn what is theirs and not to be saved by somebody else, and who ultimately, at bottom, trust in themselves and not any other. Paul is not ashamed to share this gospel, even though this gospel, by definition, is an offense to the world. Because it's a gospel that declares all the world to be in need of a saving that the world can't provide. Paul, he says, or Paul says, I'm eager to share this very gospel, and we should be too. But we note that there are many temptations that could creep in that would cause us to be reluctant. But Paul is ready, as the verse continues, and willing to declare this message because, as we mentioned, it's God's power to save sinners. This message is God and his power working to deliver sinners from the power of sin That is, the power of sin that dominates and enslaves and offers us continually empty promises of fleeting joy as long as it can while it runs our lives. The power of sin that we were all living under before we came to know Christ and were set free from that. Also, the gospel that delivers from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, which is death. Both physical death in this life and eternally. Death expressed in our separation from the God who is life himself. Death expressed in our just judgment for our rebellion against him, having fallen short of his righteousness and being put out from him to experience that wrath eternally. This gospel delivers in these ways from the power and the penalty of sin. Therefore, Paul is eager to declare it because God works through it to save. Now, it gets even better. 
whosoever who would believe it. This gospel, Paul says, can save from the things that we most need to be saved from, and it can save anybody. That's what he means when he says to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, because that's the order in which it came in the history of redemption. First, the message went to the people of Israel, and then from them to the Gentile world, which means everybody else. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, there's no one, in other words, this gospel cannot save. There's no one it does not apply to. There's no one who has a need deeper than or other than what the gospel can address. All people, regardless of their background, who they are, or what they've done, everyone, Paul says, needs to hear this message because it's the only message by which anyone can be saved. And as Paul writes this, for us, as we're thinking about evangelism and reaching out to our neighbors, he shows us here with this verse that no matter how different we all might be, and that is difference, there's plenty of differences among us and in this room and in our city, whatever cultural or linguistic barriers exist, however much your personal story might differ from your neighbor's personal story, the heartbeat of your stories is actually one and the same. And it's this, an image bearer of God created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, desperately needing to be reconciled to God. That's the deepest drama of all our stories. All of our stories have the same essential problem. We've all fallen short of God's righteousness. And as he is a just judge, we stand condemned before him. All of us have one in the same deepest need, to be delivered from our sin-wrought separation from God, forgiven of our sins against God, to be freed from the curse of the law and our just sentence of condemnation before God. This is all our problem. This is all our need. Every person you meet, every neighbor that you bump into, this is at the core of the drama of their lives. This is the question that most needs answering. This is the problem that most needs to be addressed. And, the resolution to this situation that's offered to all is found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is asserting here. He's saying that God in utter grace, because he doesn't need to save anyone. We've fallen short. He doesn't need to do this. He would be just to just assign us our sentence. But God in utter grace offers life to all those who deserve death. And there's no kind of person who is so dead in their sin that God cannot reach them with his saving grace. And God, here's where the rubber meets the road, will reach them through us. This is what Paul is getting at here. But as we think about this, Michael Reeves, again, he comes to encourage us to the point we've been making. He says this, that when we go out with the gospel, we are holding in our hands the power of God Preaching Christ and not ourselves. <laughs> not preaching our personal stories, our experiences, or our perspectives. We bring, he says, God himself to bear upon the lives of our hearers when we present the gospel to them. This is why Paul is so eager to share this message with every type of person God might put in his path. But, how exactly does God work to save 
through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul advances his argument in verse 17, and let's journey on with him. He says, this gospel is the power to save anyone, but how is that salvation accomplished? Verse 17 says that the gospel is God's power for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the gospel saves through the revelation of God's righteousness. What does this mean? <laughs> it's very important we understand what this, this means. This is crucial to Paul's thesis statement for the whole letter of Romans, which is, as Martin Luther says, his purest articulation of the gospel. If we miss this verse, we miss the gospel. So what does it mean that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? Paul doesn't say that God saves because in the gospel, the love of God wins the day, right? He doesn't say because in his mercy, God decides to look the other way because he just couldn't stay mad at us, right? But that God reveals his righteousness unto our salvation. And now on the surface, this can actually seem unexpected or confusing, and for some, even troubling. Those like the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who read these words in Romans 1.17 back in the 16th century and offered this reflection. Listen to what Luther thought about this verse uh, as he was wrestling with what it could mean for him. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, that is, through the Roman Catholic system of confession and penance that he was under at the time. He says this, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemy, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that is the righteous moral law of the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, Luther says, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. <laughs> Nevertheless, I importunately uh, beat upon Paul at this place, most ardently desiring to know what he meant. Did you catch that? Luther was troubled by this phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed, and he hated it. Because he at first thought that what it meant was that in the gospel, the righteousness and follow me here, with which God himself is righteous. That's what's being revealed, how righteous God is. That is, the righteousness that belongs to God himself. The righteousness that if we're following along here, he, Luther, and every other human being has fallen short of. So if all the gospel message does is present God as he is, then we have a problem, don't we? Because we are not as he is. If the message was about showing us how righteous we need to be in order to find life before God, this would not be good news at all. This would be bad news for us. If this is what the revelation of the righteousness of God meant. But, thanks be to God, 
that the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is a saving, not a condemning righteousness. That is not the revelation of the righteousness that God demands of us, but, listen to this, of the righteousness that God freely gives to us. He reveals the righteousness that he gives to us. He reveals to us the good news that we can obtain the righteousness we lack but desperately need in order to stand in the presence of the holy God. That's why the gospel is good news. It reveals how we might come to possess this righteousness. And really, by way of a summary here, this is, the centra- this is central to the argument of Paul in Romans. I could go through a whole thing of Romans 1 through 3. We don't have time for that, but go read it this week. Romans 1 through 3. This is the whole problem. The central problem that the gospel is addressing in the book of Romans is that God is righteous. We are not. How will unrighteous man come into fellowship with the righteous God? The gospel solves that problem, which Paul lays out for us in Romans 1, uh, beginning in verse 18, right right after our verse here, through the end of chapter 3. Because Paul says, right after he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, he then begins the next verse and says, and the wrath of God is revealed toward what? All unrighteousness. So all who are unrighteous have a problem of wrath, a problem of judgment. Something has to happen for us to stand before God and receive something other than a verdict of condemned. This is the argument and the burden of Romans 1 through 3. All of us, all people in Romans chapter 1, we create false gods and worship things that are not God and make things that are not ultimate the ultimate because we suppress the truth and knowledge that we all have in our hearts of God. We suppress it down, like trying to keep a ball under the water because we want to live our own way. Even the Jewish people in Romans chapter 2, they had the law of God. They knew his righteous requirement, but guess what? They didn't keep it. <laughs> and they hypocritically looked down on other people who didn't have the law and didn't keep the law. And so even those to whom the law came, they fell short of meeting its demands, yet still tried to construct a righteousness of their own that was comparative toward others. And that still falls short of God's perfect standard. Paul concludes in Romans 3 by saying this, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, dominated by it under its power, that none are righteous, no, not one. And that by the works of the law, that is, obedience to God's righteous requirements, no human being will be justified, which means to be declared righteous by God the judge, to enter into his courtroom and get the verdict of not guilty, innocent of all charges. No one will come into that verdict on their own. (laughs) So what do we do? (laughs) What's what's the answer for us? Who all stand before this God, and as Romans 3.19 says, have our mouths stopped? meaning we have no appeal, we have no, but Lord this, but that, we have no defense. We're all in this boat before the judge, and we have no hope of a righteousness in and of ourselves. This is bad news. Yet, here, looking ahead to where the rest of Romans will go, the greatest news of all is that there is actually one man who has what we lack, and we know him. That's Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came into this world being born under the law and fulfilled God's law with a life of perfect obedience. He lived the life that we were all meant to live, perfectly obeying and honoring and loving God as we ought to with all our mind, soul, heart, and strength. He never lapsed, never failed to do just that. He didn't need to do this. (laughs) He enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with his Father, but he came to do this 
for us. He came in grace to give us what we lacked, that we might stand in the presence of God with him and in him. He gave his own life to do this, to accomplish this, so that we would find life in him. Charles Hodge, one commentator, summarizes this by saying, The righteousness of God, therefore, which the gospel reveals, and by which we are constituted or declared, accounted to be righteous, in that legal sort of sense, is the perfect righteousness of Christ, which, and it's important we hear both of these, completely meets and answers all the demands of the law to which all men are subject and which all have broken. And to help us think about it, Jesus doesn't just come into uh, our lives. The gospel doesn't just go forth you know, to our neighbors. We didn't just receive it and go, hey, the gospel is a clean slate, right? Everything that's happened before, God's w- wiped it clean. Because what does that mean for the future? <laughs> Could we dirty it up again? We might. <laughs> we need to have the slate clean, right? We have real sin, real offense against God, and God has to do something about it. He can't just welcome us in if we're an offender. The judge can't pardon uh, a criminal if there's no justice that's been given, right, to them. And so what Jesus does on the cross is that, on one hand, he takes our sin and he does away with it. He bears the penalty, the punishment for it, on our behalf, clearing our slate. There's forgiveness. But that's not all he does, because we still need to be able to stand before God with a positive righteousness. That is a status that is not just neutral, but is innocent, righteous, not guilty of all counts. And so what Jesus does is he lives the life we should have lived, and then he gives that life to us. On the cross, he takes our sin, and in his death and resurrection, he gives to us What would be the reward of his perfect obedience? Eternal life. He freely shares that with us. So we don't just have a clean slate, but in Christ, a perfect record. God gives to us all that's required that we might stand before him and live before him. And church, this is the wonder of the gospel and the astounding generosity of our God, is it not? For really, every other path of salvation, whether that's a sacred or or secular path, every other so-called gospel, every other kind of deliverance that's being offered in the world. It's not a gospel of grace like that, but it's a gospel of works, which really say, here's the way you can earn salvation. (laughs) The good news is that it's provided a way for you to climb up the ladder and do your best, and maybe you'll get there. That's every other path, every other religion, every other worldview, every other answer to what's really wrong in you or the culture is you do more. Is it not? You do better. You make yourself good to get to God. The gospel says Christ, the only good man, the only righteous man, gave his life for you that you could come to God just as you are. His righteous robe covering your tatters. The gospel is not of works but of grace. It is better news than any other message. It is the news we've received. That's the news our neighbors need to hear. Not of a God who demands they measure up, then they come to him, but of a God who comes to them and gives them all they need in Christ. And Luther, he summarizes this for us as he turns the corner back in 1519, as he comes about his discovery of the true meaning of Romans 117. So let's pick back up with Luther and then we'll enter into our second point. Returning to Luther's reflection, we arrive at his great discovery, where he says, 
at last, as he beat upon Paul, said, Paul, what do you mean? Is this it? This can't be the gospel. What will set me free? He's agonized in his conscience. He's tormented. He wants, more than anything, to be at peace with God, but he knows he falls short. And finally, the word is opened up to him, and he says this, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, he says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God, listen to this, is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness. That is the righteousness that we didn't do, right? It's passive to us because we just receive it. We didn't do it. Jesus did, (laughs) right? The passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here, when Luther realized that it wasn't about anything he could do to please God and to earn his grace, but it was all about what God had provided for him in Christ. Here, Luther says, oh, paradise was opened up to me. Here, I can now love and enjoy this God, the God before (laughs) of whom I was angry and afraid and served out of duty, but not out of the desire of my heart most deeply. God gives us, church, the righteousness we desperately need as a gift to be received by faith. And this brings us to our second point, that we're saved by receiving, not doing. And commenting on Luther's discovery here, our friend Michael Reeves, (laughs) again, he says in a, a different book on the history of the Protestant Reformation, summarizing Luther's conclusion here, he says, here Luther saw for the first time truly good news of a kind and generous God who gives sinners the gift of his own righteousness. The Christian life, then, could not be about the sinner's struggle to achieve his own paltry human righteousness. It was about accepting God's own perfect divine righteousness the righteousness that was revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. Here now was a God who does not want our goodness, but our trust. It was this good news that reformed Luther's heart and this message that he would proclaim to bring reformation to others. In the gospel, here now is a God who does not want our goodness, meaning as in a tip the scales with our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds kind of thing. He doesn't want us to be good in order to earn our place in his good graces. No, no, no. But a God who wants our trust. A God who graciously offers to us all we need to be received by faith. And this is what the rest of verse 17 is all about. The gospel is the power for salvation because looking back at our text, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith for faith. 
And this phrase here, it means that the gracious generosity of God in giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ is received by faith and by faith alone. (laughs) That's it. Faith from first to last. Apart from anything we do, this righteousness comes to us as a gift to be received by faith. God offers the very righteousness of his son to all, and here's the entailment, to all who would set aside their own righteousness and quit trying to make themselves good to come to God, to quit trying to earn their way to him, quit trying to establish an identity apart from Christ, to quit trying to make themselves all cleaned up before they come in to receive what God would have for them. He says, abandon that. Abandon your efforts. Abandon your trust in yourselves and your ability to create meaning, value, acceptance, whatever that might be, and receive it all from me. Come and cling to Christ with empty hands. So all we have to do is just make sure our hands are empty of all that lesser righteousness. Make sure our hands are empty of all that stuff that doesn't measure up to what God requires because we don't need it. We have it in Jesus. A righteousness which is given to us as we come to receive it by faith that Luther describes as an alien righteousness. Not from outer space, (laughs) but from outside of us. An alien righteousness that doesn't come from within us, right? We don't generate it, we don't do it, we don't perform it, but it comes from apart from us to be received by us. And as we think of the illustration, it's like Christ's righteous robe being placed over us, even as we are still at heart a sinner. We have not measured up, we have not made ourselves righteous, we still have our dirty tatters and robes on, but Christ comes and he gives us his righteous robe. It's ours now, it belongs to us, we are in it, and now we can begin to live a life that reflects that. But we receive it just as we are alien to us, but now a part of us. An alien righteousness means that nothing in us could merit God's acceptance. Nothing in me or from me could change me. That's the idea here. And to illustrate this, uh, some of you may not know this, but all week long, I've had an earache that's turned into an ear infection. Yes, all week long, I've had a ringing in my right ear (laughs) and a pain and it sounds like I can only hear you know half of what's going on and not very well (laughs) but all week long I've been dealing with this right and it's been a pain (laughs) and here's the thing try as I might throughout the week all my efforts to change this condition (laughs) every home remedy every wikipedia search every webmd browsing around um, every steaming cup of water I placed my ear over to see if that would do something Uh, Every bit of garlic and onion and ginger I consume to try to see if that would just uh, alleviate things. (laughs) Every time I slept upright on all my pillows and not comfortably like I'd like to, and so on. All those efforts, guess what? They they fell short. I could not do it. I couldn't change my condition. But it also got to the point where I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't live like that condition wasn't there and try to just dismiss it, to dismiss the brokenness to dismiss, in other words, the unrighteousness that we all come to deal with before God. I couldn't pretend like it wasn't there, but I couldn't fix it on my own, (laughs) and I couldn't just will my sickness into health just by positive thinking and putting my own frame of mind on it. Something had to happen, and that something couldn't come from me. So I came to the realization, as you do, that I needed a cure that was outside of myself. (laughs) Something apart from me had to come to me. 
It wasn't in me to make or declare or transform my condition to the kind of health and functioning that I was made for. And so, what I did, I abandoned my pursuit <laughs> of health according to my efforts, and I cast myself upon the care of an urgent care doctor yesterday. <laughs> I went to urgent care with nothing to offer them except an aching ear. That's all I had to bring. And I received medicine <laughs> that would do a work in me that I could never do myself, to restore me, to heal me, to set right what was wrong in me. <laughs> and as silly as all that is in my ear, in the gospel, church, God offers the righteousness of his son to all those who come to him, acknowledging their unrighteousness, turning away from their attempts to make themselves good enough for God and humbly asking for his cure, who approach him, with nothing to contribute to their salvation except their sin, and receive a Savior who has died on the cross to take away their sin and arisen from the grave to give them new life. To receive not only forgiveness for what we have done, but also justification, a declaration of God's righteousness that is now ours because of what Christ has done, living his perfectly obedient life on our behalf. This is the righteousness that God reveals in the gospel, and it's the righteousness that we receive by faith that Paul confirms, finally, by quoting from Habakkuk 2 in the last part of our verse. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is received by faith, um, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Looking back to the Old Testament to say, this has been the gospel all along. And what he's here meaning is that not the, righteousness, uh, the righteous shall live by faith, meaning that those who are righteous are those who are living faithfully enough. No, no, no. But is that those who are righteous by faith shall live. What was our problem at the beginning? That we all stand before God the judge and we're what? Condemned. There's death as we stand before him. But now, because of the gospel, what do we find? That those who are righteous by faith shall live shall live in the presence of God, shall live with him now and forever, shall live in his fellowship, in his love and goodness and grace forevermore. Those who are righteous by faith shall live. Church, the gospel is the good news of the God who gives us all we need to be saved and to stand before him. The good news that we don't have to save ourselves through doing what God demands, but that God saves us through giving and us receiving, by grace through faith. According to his own boundless generosity and acknowledging our immeasurable need. Oh, what a God we have. Oh, what a gospel we believe and we celebrate and we share. And as we finish up today, three ways we should respond to it. Number one, if you have never received this gospel before. Today, receive this gospel. If you have not yet abandoned your pursuit and your endeavor to make yourself good enough for God, quit it today. Because you only find what Luther found, that you'll always fall short, but that God has provided a better way. That we were not meant to earn our way into his grace, but to receive it as a free gift that we might be changed and thereafter actually begin to live like the new people he makes us in Jesus. If you've never received him before, you never believed in him before, respond to this message of grace today, knowing that it's for all who would 
believe. Secondly, to those who believe in this room, members of Cross of Grace Church, ask yourself and reflect on it this week. Do you rejoice in the God of the gospel? As Reeves put it in the beginning of our time together, do you honestly find him to be beautiful and enjoyable? Do you see him aright? And if not, why not? What's clouding or obscuring your vision of him? Have you viewed evangelism as a duty you must perform for God instead of a delight in which the God of the gospel works in and through you to pour himself out? Ask yourself this week, do you find him beautiful and enjoyable? Are you being filled with the God we've just heard about in this text so that you can't help want to share him with others? And finally, number three, be confident that God will work through this gospel. He's called nothing else his power unto salvation. The message of Christ crucified for our sins, buried in the grave, and raised to new life, to be received by faith and repentance, is the one and only message that every one of our neighbors needs to hear. And to quote Reeves again, remember this, take this with you. When we go out with the gospel, we bring God himself to bear upon our hearers. Share this gospel and expect God to work through it by the power of his spirit to the glory of his son. And church, as we close, we've seen, we've delighted in, and we've taken heart in the fact that the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. Because in it, we receive all we lack from God. He gives us everything we need to stand before him, to be received by the empty hands of faith, and he can give our neighbors all they need as well. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your generosity and your grace. When all we deserved from you was your righteous judgment, you came and offered the righteous one, your son, to take that judgment upon himself and to give his righteousness to those who fell far, far short of it. We respond today by receiving the grace of the gospel afresh and asking that you would fill our hearts such that we would be generous and gracious and as you are moving out toward our neighbors, toward our spouses, toward our children, toward one another, being filled with you so that we would share you freely for the glory of your name. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.